You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Welcome to Aaron Menke's Cabinet of Curiosities, a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild. Our world is full of the unexplainable. And if history is an open book, all of these amazing tales are right there on display, just waiting for us to explore. Welcome to the Cabinet of Curiosities. Secret societies litter the historical timeline with their closed doors and shuttered windows. They are veritable factories of curiosity, from Templars and Freemasons to the always fascinating Illuminati. Each one is riddled with mystery. But those aren't the only three. They just so happen to be the ones that most people can name, because most secret societies usually fail to pique our curiosity. Take, for instance, a rather obscure order that arose in Bavaria back in 1738. The Pope had just issued a papal bull, forbidding any Catholic from joining the Freemasons. And that just didn't sit well with one particular group. They wanted to join the elites in the hallowed halls of Freemasons, but the risk of excommunication made them pause. As such, an idea dawned on the former Freemason elector of the city of Cologne, a guy named Clemens August of Wittelsbach. It was Clemens' brilliant idea to subvert this papal bull by creating another society of Freemasons, and simply giving it a different name. But they would not lose the selectivity that all secret orders must have. This one required all aspiring members to possess, and I quote, loyalty, trust, discretion, tenderness, sweetness, humanity, in a word, all the qualities that are the basis of love and friendship. Also, according to the doctrine of their club, the qualities of the icon of their order. To make it more official, this new society came complete with their own initiation rituals, many of which were quite progressive. Men and women alike were free to join, so long as they were Catholic, embodied the traits of their beloved icon, and willing to go through the rather particular initiation rites. On the day of initiation, all aspiring novices would put on a brass collar and scratch at the order's door to be let in. They would then be blindfolded and paraded around the room nine times. And all while the initiated members within barked loudly in an attempt to shake the novices into giving up their claim to the order, testing their mettle, if you will. But it didn't end there. If novices passed the gauntlet of noise and humiliation, they would then be required to kiss the backside of a porcelain figure of the group's icon. More specifically, just under the tail. Because, you see, this secret society's mascot wasn't a dead saint or an old-world deity. No, no. It was a porcelain dog. When the dedication was thoroughly proven and unquestionably sound, new members were given silver medallions with the emblem of the society emblazoned for all to see. Not exactly subtle, but it did the trick. Although they didn't need to do it for long, because this secret society's lifespan could only be considered long in dog years. A mere 10 years after founding, another branch attempted to start up elsewhere, only to be shut down. 
Soon after, a government investigation into the Order and their lodge began in earnest, and all of those secrets started to come to light. The government wasn't pleased with the fees and the controls that the Order held over its members, so they shut down the new branch of the Order before it was even house-trained. According to German records, the Order itself was short-lived, with the original group disbanding not long after, although some records in France suggest it might have hung on until 1902. Now, back to the matter of the mascots of this Order. All good secret societies require a figurehead of some sort, right? The emblem by which all members hold themselves to. And since the members of this society were so inspired by the canine, you might imagine they went with a powerful, mighty, and intimidating breed. But if you did, you'd be wrong. You see, they called themselves the Order of the Pug. Life imitates art. It's a saying that has come to signify that moment when something we experience in reality feels inspired by a creative work. For example, the book The Wreck of the Titan told the story of a massive British ocean liner hitting an iceberg and sinking in the North Atlantic. It was published in 1898, and just 14 years later, the real-life Titanic met the exact same fate on its maiden voyage. But it was Oscar Wilde who said life imitates art far more than art imitates life. He believed art didn't inspire real-life experiences and situations. It changed how we viewed them. For example, when we see fog rolling over a field as something beautiful, it's because painters like J.M.W. Turner were able to capture that beauty in their paintings. To us, life imitates art because we view life through a more artistic lens. But there have been occasions when that saying was flipped around, when art, in fact, imitated life. And one such person to experience that was Thomas Gagan. He didn't know it at the time, but his house was going to inspire several works of art over the next 50 years. In 1919, Thomas was working as the district attorney of Rockland County, New York, just over 30 miles north of Manhattan. He bought a large Victorian-style home in the town of Haverstraw, but it had seen better days. It had been built back in 1885 near a hill overlooking the Hudson River, but had sat abandoned for years. Kids in town thought it was haunted, of course, but that didn't stop drifters from stopping by for a night's rest, often sleeping in the kitchen on a pile of hay. After World War I, Thomas bought the dwelling and renovated it so that he and his family could live there comfortably. It was three stories tall, with a covered porch and a tower-like central section in front that soared above the rest of the house. It boasted a mansard roof common for the era, which sloped twice on each side. The upper slope on top connected to the steeper slope on the bottom, with dormer windows jutting out around its perimeter. Thomas's daughter, Amo, was the oldest of six and slept in a room on the second floor. She could see the Hudson from her window. One day in 1925, while gazing out at the landscape, she noticed a man on the other side of the tracks. He had a small canvas set up on a portable easel and he was painting something. Little did she know, she was watching a legend create what would become one of the most important paintings of the 20th century, House by the Railroad by Edward Hopper. Hopper's interpretation of the house was smaller in scale. The windows practically covered the narrower sides and roof, with the interior shades pulled to various heights inside. Its bright white exterior popped against the shadow cast by the setting sun, which turned the house's front to a more muddled gray-blue color, 
and across the foreground, the artist painted a length of red, oxidized train tracks. Hopper's painting portrayed the home as the solitary occupant of a town so remote even the trains stopped going there. It became iconic, so much so that the Museum of Modern Art featured it in their first American art exhibition in 1929. The following year, it was inducted as a permanent part of their collection. But the curators at the Museum of Modern Art weren't the only ones captivated by the house. 3,000 miles away and 30 years later, a film director was looking for inspiration. He had recently acquired the rights to a scintillating new book that told the story of a lonely man living by himself in a creepy house at the top of a hill. Hopper's painting had been an inspiration to the director, who got to work with his set designers building his own version of the house on the Universal Studios backlot. For his rendition, however, he used parts of the Dowd House from the 1950 movie Harvey starring Jimmy Stewart. Most notably, he utilized the front of the home, with a round porthole window in the middle of its mansard roof. Like Thomas Gagan's residence back in New York, the towering structure loomed ominously over the rest of the house. The director also had the exterior weathered and darkened. The dilapidated appearance gave the home an even more haunted look, which was exactly what Mr. Hitchcock was hoping for. After all, it wouldn't have been scary for Norman Bates to care for his motel guests in a house that looked all clean and new. Visitors to Haverstraw don't often realize that the Gagan house inspired both Hopper's painting and Norman Bates' home in the film version of Psycho, but the resemblance isn't hard to see. Art imitated life, and we're all the richer for it. I hope you've enjoyed today's guided tour of the Cabinet of Curiosities. Subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts or learn more about the show by visiting curiositiespodcast.com. This show was created by me, Aaron Mankey, in partnership with How Stuff Works. I make another award-winning show called Lore, which is a podcast, book series, and television show. And you can learn all about it over at theworldoflore.com. And until next time, stay curious. Thank you.